Uh, grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be reading a few verses here. Uh, new bumper, new sermon series as we start the year. Many of you remember that uh, right before Advent we left off in James. And uh, we were going to jump back into James, but the leaders and I talked, and uh, this was on our heart to do this. What I'm going to talk about today and what we're going to do for the next seven weeks as we start off our year. And so uh, we'll launch into that in my sermon today. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. This will be our text for today. If you don't have a Bible, then down the center column of seats, you'll find a couple underneath your seat. You're welcome to grab that. Hold on to it. Read the scriptures with us. Let's read these out loud together. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Old story of Mary and Martha. Let's read. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this day, this day that marks a new year, 2017. Um, as the psalmist said, uh, this is the day that the Lord has made. You make every day, but we rejoice in this day. And we pray that you make our hearts glad in it, that you make our hearts hopeful, expectant for all that you're going to do in our lives, in our families, in our jobs, uh, amongst our neighbors as we frequent with them and as we befriend them, um, but also in our church. Uh, Lord, be present in our lives. May we be present uh, with you as we are in union with Jesus. Uh, today, as we launch this new series, we're praying God, that you would help us, uh, you know, we, these things that we do at the beginning of a new year, looking back, but also looking forward, we pray that um, um, just the, the disciplines of the Christian life would be helpful to us as we uh, attempt in our strength, but leaning on the strength that only you can give us uh, to be more connected to you. We pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, so it's a new year, and I don't know about you, but typically at the beginning of a new year, I've done a couple things, at least two things. I've, I've looked back, I've assessed um, what I did with my life uh, in accordance with what I was given, and then um, I might look ahead. Okay, so I'm going to take a piece of paper out, I'm going to break my journal out, or perhaps you might do this just in your head. You, thought, you start thinking uh, about the future, about based upon where you were, some things that you did well, maybe some things that you did not do quite so well, how can I improve on those things? And we do that personally. We do that in our spiritual lives, and we probably do it professionally. Um, I don't know if you've done that yet, but here's my personal experience, and obviously I'm a pastor, so I have a little insight into some of your lives, but definitely a lot of lives uh, that I've touched as a pastor. It's not just last year, and it's this, this thing that we do every year, it's, it's one deficiency that all of us have, and I don't know if you've ever put this on your list of things you want to do better, but all of us have a deficiency in connecting with God. Many of us struggle holistically with how we do that. How do you connect with God on a daily basis? 
I mean, have any of you all been successful at doing that, like consistently over time without, without fail? None of us in this room can say that. And I don't think it's not that we're not trying to be sincere. We're not, not trying to do what the Bible says. We're not, not trying to obey God and what the scriptures tell us that we're supposed to do. We're not trying to love our church, but it's just in us. I think through, firstly, our busyness, especially as people in D.C., I mean, it's in the culture to be, to be busy, to, to not stop, to exhaust yourself in an activity or in your job or in all kinds of things. And so that's one of our issues. But I think, and you can push back on this, I think some of us are just bored. We're bored with life. We're bored with going through the motions. We're bored with Christianity. And I would tell you that spiritual boredom um, is a huge problem if you, are, if you have launched into that because it does a couple things. It demotivates you. It drains the life out of your spiritual service. The energy that you should put into serving and worshiping God is just sucked up into the just going through the motions. Your heart's not in it. You sing the songs, but the, the songs aren't moving you. You read your Bible, but the words don't jump off the page. In fact, the, the whole Bible is it's just flat and it's dry. I don't know who said this, but this is a good quote as we start this morning. If you're weary of some sleepy form of devotion... God is more weary than you are. I, I, I don't have no idea who wrote that. Just found it as I was researching for this sermon series. And uh, I think it was meant to be a joke. But what he's saying is, um, even more than you do, God does not want you to be bored with your spiritual devotion. Why is that? Because you, you steal his glory. If you're a Christian, you're calling yourself a Christian, and you're not all the way in it. You're not like in it to win it. Like, you can't win God. But, I mean... Like to get all that you can, God, he, he, he fails to get the glory if all of us aren't into giving him glory. And so what we want to do, what the leaders and I have decided to do as we begin 2017, is to help all of us with this. And so this morning we're starting a new series called Rhythms, Disciplines for Everyday Spirituality. And we're going to talk about some spiritual disciplines, things that the Bible commands us to do, that when we do them, it helps us do those things that are hard to do. Does that make sense? Things the Bible tells us to do that have a little bit of work. I mean, there's, there's labor required to it. It's called a discipline. But when we do it, it, makes, it, it, it paves a path for us to do those things that are really hard to do, um, that, we're supposed, that we should do um, habitually. Years ago, I ran across a book, a good book. I'm not recommending the book, but I'm going to talk about the book in my sermon. And I'm going to talk about it so much that you probably don't even go need to pick the book up, right? So the book is called Spiritual uh, Sacred Pathways. It's written by a guy named Gary Thomas, 2010 vintage. And so it's not too old, but not necessarily new. And Gary Thomas is a, is a, um, he's a well-known Christian author. And in this book, to, to write the book, he surveyed a bunch of people, Christian, non-Christian. And he asked this one question, when do you feel closest to God? And so the, the book becomes the answer to this question. And that sounds kind of mystical, doesn't it? Spiritual pathways, but it's really not. Here's what Gary Thomas means by spiritual pathway. He says, it's your preferred environment or activity for connecting with God. His contention is all of us have an affinity, even in our spiritual lives, whereby we're doing something, we're in a certain place, in doing that kind of activity, and we feel like we're closer to God. You agree with that? I, I mean, I think it's, a, a, it's not just a good idea. I think that's how, 
how we live. And he lists nine. These are the nine that he lists. And uh, some of these are intuitive. You can look at them and, and tell. A naturalist, think um, nature. Those are people that like to be outside. And so a, a naturalist would feel closer to God just by being outside, taking a walk, going for a hike, doing those kinds of things. Traditionalist is into um, uh, just the rhythmic um, uh, worship and being habitual about that. Ascetics, those are like deep people. I mean, they, they, they're into disciplining themselves um, to the point where, uh, you know, like monkish. Isolation, solitude, no, um, none of the peripheral stuff that we would have like in your normal home so that you would uh, lend yourself to the, the pure worship of God. And so the, the point behind all these is uh, we can be, all of us have an affinity, an inclination to that if I'm doing some of these things, I will worship. I feel like I'm um, meeting with God more than if I did some other things. And I want you to think about that. Uh, what if I ask you this question? When do I feel closest to God? Take 10 seconds. Think about that. And if you're brave enough, in the next 10 seconds, share it with the person beside you. If you don't know him, it'll be a great, a great introduction. All right? When do I feel closest to God? Most of us feel closest to God by participating in an activity, being in certain places, and doing certain things. And in this series, starting today, we're going to talk about what those places are, what those activities are, and what those things might be. And here's our goal. Our goal is that we would learn what the, the Bible says, the, the, the simple disciplines that we should be doing as Christians are. But for those of you that have the, you know, that thing that many of us have, spiritual boredom going on, we're trying to awaken ourselves away from spiritual boredom. More importantly, we're trying to learn how we can connect with God, not just at the high holy days, Christmas and Easter, or even connect with God when we come to church and you know you got all the stuff that makes church happen. We got a, an awesome worship team leading us into worship. You got somebody preaching, you know, all that stuff going on. How can I connect God, connect to God without all that stuff, but still meet with God as He intends for me to do? So it's a new year, and many of you perhaps have already thought through resolutions, or maybe you call them goals. And this is, this is my experience, and it's probably the experience of 80% of the people in the world that do this. You, you got your list of stuff that you want to do better, and you start out earnestly doing that. You do it, and you do it, and you do it like reading the Bible. Genesis, love it. Exodus, love it. And you get to Leviticus, like, what is this? And you just like, it gets tough, right? <laughs> it gets tough. And you either like skip over it and go to the next book or, or you just like quit. It's like, I can't do this. And I think sometimes life gets like that. And so here's what we're, this is what we're trying to help all of us do in this series. Make it so that we're motivated not just to, we get to Leviticus, not just the six weeks of doing whatever your New Year's resolutions are or to, six weeks towards your goals, but making it so that in your heart, you it's not by willpower or your own energy, but we're tapping into the power that can only come from the God that we serve, the Holy Spirit himself, empowering us to, to, to be connected to the God that we really do want to be connected with. So Gary Thomas lists nine spiritual pathways. 
uh, I'm going to amend his list that you saw on the screen, and I'm going to reduce it to seven. And these are my take on spiritual pathways that help us get into spiritual disciplines. The first one is the naturalist. Actually, I stole that from Gary. Uh, He used that one. That was his first one. A naturalist feels closest to God, spending time in creation. These are you, I mean, those of you that like the outside. You like want to go for a hike. You want to go mountain climbing. Um, You feel like God is making you alive when you're watching the Discovery Channel and seeing just the wild out there right on your TV. You love the outdoors. Uh, When you're outside, it makes your soul feel like it's coming alive. And some of you are like this. Uh, some, you know, many of us go to work here in the D.C. area, and when you go to your building, as whether it's the Pentagon or some other building around D.C., I mean, you, your like, whole soul feels like it's cramped in because you feel like the, 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 the building with no walls or uh, with walls and no, no windows has just like blocked you away from the, the brightness of the sky or the, seeing the clouds or the mountains in the distance or literally having the wind in your face. And so someone that's a naturalist, this pathway feels closest to God when they're spending time in God's creation. I think in the Bible, uh, King David was much like this. We learn about King David when he was a young, young boy, and he spent most of his days as a young boy in that agrarian society outside. He was a shepherd. Okay, and as a shepherd tending sheep, he would have been outside day and night uh, caring for and protecting those sheep. And I think when we get to the Psalms and when we read stuff like Psalm 19:1, when David says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, these are the words of someone who spent a lot of time outside just gazing, right? I mean, you can't come up with these words without being observant and, and actually moved by the things that you're seeing. And not just this psalm, but the others that we read um, help us know that David was a man who appreciated God's creation. Let me be honest with you. This ain't me. All right, so check it out. Obviously, I spent a lot of time in the Army. I, I used to like going to the field, but it's, that's like nine years removed now. And I'm okay with going for a hike, going out into woods like once every two years. And here's what did it for me. I tolerated it in the Army. I was an artilleryman. You know, artillery, we come with stuff. We got stuff to keep us comfortable. Um, Ranger school. So, I mean, this is like right at the beginning of my service. And so Ranger school, uh, I was at De- uh, Dahlonega, Georgia. And don't, don't let anybody tell you that Dahlonega, Georgia isn't cold and the mountains aren't steep. So mountain warfare, we're like got really heavy backpacks on. It's like this time, it's cold. You're out in the elements for days at a time. And they made us not just climb the Tennessee Valley Divide, they made us uh, rappel off of and climb these, like, and rock climbing and all that stuff like that. And so rock climbing, my first time doing it, it wasn't like, it wasn't like the place, the like, play-play rock climbing. It was like the real deal with the gear and all that stuff. And I mean, I just got cut up. My hands got cut up. They were frozen because it was cold. I got minor frostbite. A week later, I got uh, cellulitis. They put me in the hospital in the midst of ranger school, made me recycle and go all the way back and do it over again. So, I'm not a naturalist. Perhaps you are. (laughs) Definitely not me. All right, show of hands. Anybody that feels closer to God when you're outside amongst nature? Seriously, show of hands. Check it out. We got a whole church of y'all people. Lord have mercy on me. Here's another one. The relational pathway. Relationalists feel closest to God through interaction and relationship with other people. I'm not stereotyping, but for the most part, these are extroverts. 
um, you all don't even feel like you're alive when you're by yourself. You got to be around other people. You don't want to read your Bible by yourself. You'd rather be around other people. You don't want to pray. You'd rather pray in public than pray by yourself in your prayer closet. These are the kind of people that would rather study Scripture with other people than by themselves. They gain energy from other people. They feel closer to God when they are with other people. Um, these kind of people have memories from college, and their favorite memories are when they were in the lunchroom. Think about that. I mean, how many colleges, universities, you know, that have like, like slamming food in a lunchroom? I mean, obviously, today they, they got some good food. But it's not because they love the food, it's because they got to interact with all kinds of people and they remember that. One of my members from, from West Point, it's kind of like this. Uh, West Point, we, leave, we don't eat in the lunchroom, it's the cadet mess. It's Washington Hall, it's this grand Tudor Gothic building with a statue of George Washington in front of it. And of course, the whole Corps of Cadets eats at the same time. Four to 5,000 cadets seated at tables of 10, family style, and we're all served our food in like 10 minutes. It's an amazing sight. But what made it special was you're spending four years, two to three meals a day with roughly the same people. And although there's some, you know, there's some like growing up that happens at the table when you're at West Point as a cadet, it's, it's, it becomes familial. And some of your uh, some of my grandest memories, uh, seeing Ronald Reagan, seeing both of the Bush presidents, um, uh, balls and banquets, Buzz Aldrin, food fights. It's just, I mean, just some of the greatest times of my life were spent in that environment. And so it wasn't the food, it was the relationships that were forged through that environment. I, I'm definitely a relationalist, and I feel not just, I just like the interaction with other people. I feel closest to God when I'm, when I'm with other people, even more so than praying or doing uh, Christian stuff by myself. I think a model of uh, a person that's a relationalist says, be with me, walk with me as I get to know God. This is a subjective, subjective inference, but I believe the Apostle Peter was like this. I mean, think about what we know about Peter in the Bible. Uh, relig- uh, relational pathway people process out loud, right? They, they, they don't always think before they talk, and I think that's what we get to know about the Apostle Peter. And it's not that he was trying to be disruptive or trying to be a nuisance to Jesus. I think Peter was just trying to relate to to Jesus, relate to the other disciples. He was trying to engage, and it just came out that he was like, you know, uh, talk before you you think. One example, the end of John's gospel, Jesus is prophetically speaking about the the end of days of of some of these disciples. And he, he says to Peter, in your old age, you're going to be... Uh, drawn, led into a place where you don't want to go. And he's talking about how Peter is going to die. And then he gets to the Apostle John. And in the midst of talking about John's fate, Peter just like interrupts, like, well, what's going to happen to this dude? And, and Peter, again, he's not, trying to, um, he's not trying to dismiss Jesus or be interruptive. He just wants to know. And I think that, that clearly defines relational pathway people. They want to be in a loop. Better said, uh, Peter thrived in community, at least I think so. And so in our series, one of the things that we're going to talk about is the discipline of community. You know, we are, we are people of affinity. Most of us in this room, and you've been this way your whole life, you feel more comfortable around people who are just like you. The same socioeconomic status, the same profession, 
the same um, age, same number of kids, same type of neighborhoods seeing. We, we'll feel, it's not that we don't have people that we associate that are outside of that, but for the most part, we're people of affinity in many areas of our life. This thing about community, I mean, you gotta work at that. It, it doesn't happen naturally. You, it's, it's a discipline. You have to, it requires some labor. It requires you to go outside of sometimes who you are and the things that you do. It doesn't happen by accident. And so we're going to look at that in the discipline of community. Our next pathway is service. Service pathway, people feel closest to God by serving God in a ministry. Again, I'm not stereotyping, but these are the doers. And I, I love these people because I am one of these people too. Here it is. They jump in. They feel most alive when they're doing something. And in the, in the church context, it could be changing their diaper, holding the door open, coming in early, helping set up, helping to tear down. Um, they want to be an instrument of God to the church, but I think also to other people. They realize that just coming to church, listening to the music, sitting down in the seat, drinking some coffee, um, you know, going home at the end of the sermon would be absolutely boring to them. It would be it would bore them to death. They got to do something. But more than just saying they got to do something, I think is they don't have to do something. They want to do it because they feel alive when they're contributing, when they're when they're contributing to whatever the work is that's being done. They feel like God is using them. They want to serve not because they just feel needed, but that's how they connect to God and how they feel used by him towards other people. So, I mean, we're a church plant. We're three and a half years old. We'll be four in April. And three and a half years ago, four and a half, well, four years ago, our family moved from North Carolina where I was serving at a church and came up with about four families and a few other people. And about a month into getting ourselves settled, we started having church in our home. And I would tell you, I mean, that it sounds weird. It is weird. It, I mean, it is weird, right? Every Sunday, 2 o'clock, we have people in our home. There's only a few of those people left, but this is the deal. Our church would not be what it is without that core group of people. And here's what was special about those people. Um, they were special because they were willing to help in any way that, that we asked for them to help. But I think many of them were, were service pathway people. And they, they not just, they filled in because they knew we needed the help. They filled in because they knew that we were starting a church and everybody was like hand, all hands on deck. But more importantly, they, they served because they, they felt like they were connecting to God. They felt closer to God by doing what they were doing. Here's what Romans 12, 7 through 8 says. In fact, I'm going to back up a couple of, uh, I want to give you context on this verse. I'm going to back up Romans 12. I'm not prepared for this, but I, I got to do it. Romans 12. I'm going to read 6 through 8. You got 7 through 8 on the screen here. Let me find it. I use this verse in our membership class. Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. What I get out of that is Paul saying, hey, if it's any to do it, do it. Jump in, both feet, get all the way under the water, get yourself wet. Don't wait for a special invitation. Don't wait for 
um, to sign up to go around. Don't wait for the pastor to say, hey, it's our time to do this. If it's in you to do this, if this is the way God, if you feel connected to God, feel used by God, then you're supposed to be doing that. And I think the reality is some of you actually right in here right now are, are like that. You're service pathway people. You're, you feel connected by God when you're doing something, when you're engaged, when you're involved, but you're not in the game yet. All right. And so in this series, we're going to talk about the discipline of serving. There actually is a discipline of serving. God tells us to do it, obviously, in his word, but it requires some labor. We're supposed to work at this. And I would encourage you, again, if you are oriented this way, we're going to have volunteer training in about three weeks. And I would encourage you, come on out then, but don't wait till the pastor says that uh, or Nick says it. Come on out now. There's plenty of places for you to serve, and we would love for you to jump on in. Another pathway, intellectual. These people feel closest to God when your mind is stimulated. When your mind is stimulated. These are people that love to debate with you. They, I mean, they love talking deep stuff, deep things. People who want to know the why, which means they read a lot of books, they do a lot of research, they're on the internet trying to figure stuff out. People with this pathway are thinkers, deep thinkers. I think Paul, the Apostle Paul in the Bible, was probably uh, oriented this way. In, Acts, uh, in the book of Acts, we read the record of Paul, of the, all the, uh, the apostles, but particularly Paul and Peter, and in this case, of Paul preaching the gospel and planting churches. And he comes along, uh, comes to Athens in Acts chapter 17, and we read these few verses. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them, in Athens, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Uh, now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Of course, what happens next is Paul basically contextualizes the gospel for these people. He says, hey, you know, I've noticed that you've got a lot of statues and idols around here, and you've got this one particular statue that says, to the unknown God. Well, guess what? I know who the unknown God is. His name is Jesus. He's come from eternity to earth to um, make God known to you and to save you from your sins. And, oh, by the way, he has declared that there was, there's going to be a day of wrath that comes for those who have not surrendered their hearts to him. Um, I mean, what is Paul doing in this interchange? He's, he's contextualizing the gospel so that people who are far away from God can understand it, but he's engaging them intellectually. And that's what intellectual pathway people do. I think they're apologists. They want to defend the faith. They want to make, uh, make it so that people who don't know can... can um, be exposed to the research and the, the intellect that they have, but also move them to, to come on the other side so that they might know who God is as well. And so we're going to dive into this one first, uh, and, and we're not going to hit it fully. We're going to hit it partially. Our first discipline that we'll look at next week is the one that we should always start with. It's going to be, uh, we're going to call it Bible intake. 
How do you, how do you study the Bible? What should, we, what should we be doing when we meditate on the Bible? How do we make it so the spirit of the scriptures gets into us so that we're living, so that the Bible is more than just information and knowledge for us? Because that's, that is the caution for those of you who are intellectually motivated. You want to know information and knowledge. You just want to gain more. But a lot of times with, with people who just want to know why, you research, and I mean, I mean, you could read a whole bunch of theology books and philosophers, and you got the information, but devoid of the Bible, whatever you become, you become a weird Christian, right? That's how cults are started. And so we want to um, appease you by, by giving you the head knowledge, pointing you to the Bible. We want to actually include your heart. So this was the head one. The next is a heart one. It's called worship, the worship pathway. People who are oriented uh, as, in this worship pathway feel closest to God when adoring God. As much as the naturalist pathway was not me, this is definitely me. All right? So these kind of people, I mean, they, they love Christian music. They just love any opportunity to worship God. I learned early off in my, in my life, before I was a Christian, that when I, sung, when I sang, I felt closer to, to God. I, don't, I just can't explain the phenomenon. I just feel closer to him. It just, com- it just comes in me as it comes out of me. I come from a, fa- a family of singers. Everybody, almost, almost everybody on my mother's side, sings or plays an instrument, and they do it really well. Um, if you've ever noticed up here, in, like in the back, you probably heard me, or in the front, you'll see my wife looking over to me. That means she, I'm singing too loud. Or she might like take her elbow and they, and they nudge me. Uh, I just get into it, and sometimes I lose myself. And that, I mean, some of you are, are like that. And, and here's, here's the deal on this one. Uh, obviously, worship isn't just the songs we sing, and we're, we are an eclectic, diverse church. There aren't many churches like us. I, that's why I love our church. And so we want to we wanna just not talk about just how do we participate in the discipline of singing songs. We, we do want to, to at least touch on that because we want to be able to sing songs in worship that move all of you with a different genre of songs, but here's the thing. We also want to look at how, what's the, what does the discipline of worship look like to motivate us to use all of our life? I mean, every facet of our life as a form of worship to God. And again, David was a worshiper. Look what he said in Psalm 147, uh, verse 1. For it's good to sing praises to our God, for it's pleasant and the song of praise is fitting. You can't write those words without it being in you. And, and, and somehow, God made David, this guy who loved nature, to also be, I mean, a warrior and a worshiper. Another pathway is the activist pathway. Activists, you feel closest to God when leading others into action. Um, some of you are oriented this way. Uh, these, are the, these are the catalysts. I like to say these are the people that like, that like to get into stuff and get into trouble. I mean, they don't mind like getting right on the edge and making all of us uncomfortable with the things that they do to try to, of course, in a, in a Christian way, to, to make God known and to bring other people into a knowledge of him. But particularly, these are people who like to, to, to get things done and get things going. They like causes and ideas and conferences that, uh, that they can get involved in, and they like, like to drag their friends along with them. They care about the poor. They like to feed the homeless. They hate poverty. They, they, they despise injustice, and they actually want to do something about it. They feel moved to do something about these things. Uh, 
activist persons are attracted to projects. You're always fighting for the underdog. It's hard for you to be okay with how the world is because when you look at the world, everything is wrong. And you think, of all things, that you can make a difference. But the thing is, you want to bring other people along with you. And I love that about the activists. Joshua in the Old Testament was an activist. Joshua was the, the, the person that hang, hung, uh, hung around Moses as a young man. When Moses went to the temple, experiencing the presence of God, Joshua, the Bible says, was right there with him. And when Moses died, when God put Moses to death, um, Joshua became the leader of Israel and led them into the uh, to the promised land. And he says this in 2415. Uh, and if you're evil, and if there's evil in your eyes, to, uh, and if it, 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 what does these words say? And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I mean, listen to that language. I mean, this, this is the language of Make a choice. You make a choice whether you're going to go my way or the other way, but, but let's make it happen. That's the kind of language that Joshua was giving us. He was an activist, and he was calling the nation of Israel to join him in serving the God that had already delivered them from so much. How many of you would say that you're like driven by this, like your uh, activist pathway? This would be your evangelistically oriented people, that kind of thing. Anybody? We got one person in the whole room, two. All right, we need a few more, y'all. Here's the last one. Contemplative. If you're from North Carolina, you say contemplative. Us contemplative folk, uh, I'm not one of these. I shouldn't say us. We feel closest to God when we're alone with God. Again, I can't stereotype, but these are the people that shy away from other people, and they shy away from activities, not because they want to be isolated, but because they, they love being alone with God. And in fact, they isolate themselves and they make sure that they protect their time with the Lord just so they can get their solitude and silence in. They're God-focused. They're observant. And because they're God-focused and observant, they notice things in everyday life that most of us miss. They're, they're seeing God move and work all the time. And they're experiencing God in ordinary ways that many of us don't even pay attention to. Uh, if I'm honest, I will say that uh, many contemplatives uh, can seem a little mystical, and if I'm very honest, they even seem impractical sometimes with just you know removing themselves from, uh, from activities going on. But here's what's good about them. Silence, solitude, and reflection draws them closer to God, and, and God reciprocates. And this brings us to our text. I know y'all are thinking, well, good grief. Why don't we read Luke if we're not even going to talk about it? We're going to talk about it. All right, I'm almost done. Luke chapter 10, 38 through 42. This is our last um, discipline that we're going to look at. I'm going to read this one more time for us. The story of Mary and Martha. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. There's some, there's some, let, me um, let me let me pause and point out some things in the text. All right. So Martha was distracted with much serving. So you service pathway people. 
that's your tendency. In, in, in our business, I'm a server, I'm a doer. In our business, we can get so distracted, we don't, ver we don't see the thing that we should see. We don't pay attention to the very thing that we should be, be paying attention to in the moment. That's what Martha was doing. Mary was doing something else. But, but, then, but then look, look at what the Lord says. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, we can't get, con you know, it's, it's hard to get like the, the tone of Jesus' voice. But um, think about it. Think about when you say to your kid, like, you know, John Henry, John Andrew, like, I'm in trouble. Or something's going, something is being emphasized here because you're using two of my names. And so Jesus says, Martha, Martha, like, uh-oh. You're, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. The good portion has got to be good. Whatever it is, is, is Jesus is saying it, is good, which will not be taken away from her. Here's the thing with this. Mary wasn't interested in being busy with activity. Mary wasn't interested in getting everything done. Mary wasn't consumed with having her house spiggity span clean. And if there's ever a time when you want your house to be like spick and span, everything picked up, nice, nice and perfect, it's when God the Son, Jesus, comes in, right? I mean, wouldn't you want your house looking nice when Jesus comes over, hanging out, taking the shoes off, um, reclining and doing all those kinds of things? Mary wasn't worried about that. And that's key. Um, but here's what. Here's what Mary did do that was right. She did what she was supposed to do. She listened to Jesus. She just sat there and listened to Jesus. And I think in these verses, we see that Jesus exonerated her in front of her busybody sister. There's some of us that would have been just like, come on, Lord, you, you uh, get her going. Help me out so that we can all have a good time. And Jesus says, no, nah, she's doing the right thing. Leave her alone. I think this is such a lost concept, especially amongst us who are in a culture where activity is the norm, where doing stuff is the norm, where making progress on whatever you're doing, whether it's for personal or professional stuff, is we're, we're, in, we're subsumed by this, this, uh, this culture of doing stuff and, and creating stuff. Everyone wants to achieve. There's, there's few people that have a New Year's resolution of, let's, let's just pull back, let's ease up, let's do nothing, let's relax more. But I would argue that's what most of us need. Uh, perhaps the motto of our country has been this for a long time, and it's eking out into the rest of the world. You could probably finish this sentence. Um, don't just sit there. Do something. Here's, here's Mary's motto. Don't just do something. Sit there. That's pretty good. Here's what Mary's saying. You know, I'm with Jesus. It's okay for me just to sit and listen. If I'm honest, out of all these paths, I put this one last because it's hard. Like, this is like, like with, for me, for all of us, all y'all, but definitely for me, and this is like bad because I'm your pastor, uh, it's like impossible. This is like labor for me to do this. Two years ago, I went to this uh, retreat center. It was like this personal bread and breakfast. They didn't charge me at all. It was for pastors. It was like a room, a refrigerator, a microwave, and nature. And I tried to do that. I, I tried to do like a, a half a week of solitude and silence. My, I didn't have like no technology. My wife was the only one that could text me. I mean, it was like, it killed me. <laughs> I'm, I'm bad at this. And I was listening to uh, 
some pastor, I don't know, I was reading, it must have been John Piper or something like, somebody like that. And he says, ah, it was, it was my contemporary mentor, Ray Ortland. So he tweeted a picture, put it on Instagram, of his study. And, you know, it's got some like artifact stuff there. And he says, this is my place of silence and solitude because there's, you can't be a pastor without, <laughs> without doing those two things. Silence and solitude. I was like, oh my God, he just like stuck a knife into my, <laughs> into my heart. How can I be a pastor, Lord? I don't, I don't even like this stuff. But here's the thing, um, you know, if, if I analyze myself, which I don't do very well, um, on the inside I seem very calm, but on the inside I'm, my heart is racing, I'm, I'm frantic, I'm anxious about things that are going on. If I'm honest about myself, I don't live in a place of quiet. I prefer the noise. I just want life to be like, I love being in D.C. because it's all, I mean, you don't have to like, it's like all around you. You have to like go outside of D.C. to get away from the noise. But here's what happens when we don't get away, when we're not contemplative. We don't listen well. I don't listen well, which means I, I miss out on uh, really observing my wife and my kids and paying attention to what's going on in my family. Sometimes, because I'm not listening well, not being in connection with the Lord, I make bad decisions. I don't hear God well or as good as I should. And honestly, this is my deepest need, to be contemplative. But I'm not alone. I'm looking at you. This, this, is your, this is our deepest need. Our deepest need is to be connected with the Lord, to, be, to experience the presence of God. That's what we all need. But if we're all noisy and frantic and anxious, always focused on achieving something, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss the voice of God. You're not going to be able to hear the voice that all of us have to hear to be rightly connected, to be rightly motivated by the gospel. It's like, it's like God's voice booming down at Jesus' baptism saying, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. And by all means, none of us are Jesus, but we all need affirmation from God that, that are those same words, that we are his son, that that our lives and our connection to him is not based upon what we do and how well we do it, but just resting in him by faith, trusting that God has loved me enough to, for Jesus to die for me. That's what we need. And when we miss that voice, then, I mean, consequently, if you aren't getting affirmation from God, you're going to try to get that affirmation from all other kinds of things. You're going to try and get it from your spouse you're going to try and get it from your significant other. You're going to try and get it from your kids. You're going to try to get it from your work. You're going to try and get it by making your house a perfect museum. And all those things are going to fail you. And you're going to be miserable. And that's why many of us are spiritually bored. So contemplatives have figured out something that many of us need to do. How to get alone with God. We all need this. And that's why we're going to spend two weeks. So not next week. Two weeks after that, we're going to spend two weeks on the discipline, not of being con uh, contemplative. The discipline of prayer. You know, prayer is two things. It's talking to God, but it's also listening to God. And so we're going to focus on that. How can we be like, like Mary in this text? Here's another reason why I chose this particular text to end on. Uh, this text gets at the heart of our series. We're calling it Rhythms, Disciplines for Everyday Spiritual Life. What, what is a, what's a rhythm? Here's what a rhythm is. This is a simple definition. It's a strong, regular, regular pattern of movement. A rhythm or rhythms are systematic things that, that we all do 
in life. And we want to apply this concept to our spiritual lives. The rhythm or the heart of the spiritual disciplines is like Mary to sit at Jesus' feet. And so we want to use the disciplines just to be instruments or tools that we use to help us sit at Jesus' feet, to be connected to God. Uh, And so we want to use stuff like reading and studying the Bible, of prayer, of worship, of serving, and community as, as tools that help us hear and stay connected to God. Not just when we come to church, not just every once in a while, but to, to create a habit for us that we do that every day. Every day. And so to connect this to what I've been talking about the whole, the whole sermon, this spiritual pathway thing, um, I think Gary Thomas was right. There, we are, there's an affinity that we have towards some things that we do better than others. And so I'm going to challenge you. Uh, I don't like his terminology, but I do like his concept. If, if you know you're motivated by being alone and in solitude toward God, do that. If you know that you feel closer to God by being out in nature, by all means, do that more. Okay, if you know that you're motivated as an intellect to like dive deep into uh, the scriptures, then do that and then find some people who are like you and do it with other people. If you know that you're relational and that you um, feel alive when you're praying and you're reading the scriptures with other people, then I would encourage you do that. If you're one that like, loves to serve and you're not already in the game, jump in. If you're one that loves to sing, sing to the glory of God, but don't just do that. Live your life as a life as a worshiper. Throw yourself into your pathway. But here's one of the things that, that we get tripped up on. We'll, we'll do that one thing that we're good at or that one thing that we really feel close to God at to the neglect of all the other things that we actually should do because the Bible tells us to. And so we want to learn to, to, to do the pathway, but also um, let the other things guide us also in our, um, in our spiritual growth. And that's why we call it a discipline, right? There's, there's some labor required. There, there's some things that we have to work out and, and make, uh, make a part of our daily rhythm. And of course, here's, here's, what we're, here's the goal. If, you know, not a resolution, but a goal. We're trying to make it so that the, the character of, of Christ is formed in us. That's what Paul says over and over in his epistles. Look at Galatians 4.19. Paul is saying this to the, the church at Galatia. My little children, whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He's writing to them as if he was their mom and he had birthed them. He's so concerned with their spiritual maturity that he's saying, hey, this is what I want to happen, that Christ would be formed in you. And that's what the spiritual disciplines are supposed to do in us. That's what they help us to do, to make sure that we are less like our sinful selves and more like Jesus formed in us from the inside out. Pastors call that spiritual formation. Anytime you see the word spiritual, it's like the Holy Spirit is involved doing what you can't do in your own labors to make you more the person God is desiring for you to be. And the way that we make that happen is by exercising spiritual disciplines. Here's what a spiritual discipline is. I like John Ortberg's um, definition. He's a pastor and an author. He says a spiritual discipline is any activity that I can do by direct effort that will help me do what I cannot do by direct effort. It's like a tongue twister. You know how hard that was for me to say that? But those are good words. Here, here's what he's saying. It's the difference between trying and training. Y'all look at me. 
So check, check me out. I look good today, don't I? Um, I'm just kidding. Do you, some of y'all know me, do you think I could like right now go outside and run a marathon? Troy's like, mm-mm. It's like, all right, like shake your head left and right. It's like, ain't no way, ain't no way. So check it out. In my head, I have, I've never run a marathon. Like three years ago, I ran a half marathon. Um, I got like bad back, bad hip, bad knee. I, I'm stubborn. I could get out there and run three to five miles. I could struggle to 10. I could like run, walk up to 15. But after that, you, you need to come get a stretcher and like take me to the hospital. But what would happen? That's me trying. What would happen if I trained? You think I could do it? I could. I really could. I don't want to, but I, I, I could. It's the, same, it's the same way with the spiritual disciplines. Think about prayer. Some of y'all don't pray because you don't know how. You don't even know where to start. But what if um, you found somebody that knew how to pray and you just listened and you mimicked them? What if you found somebody that knew how to pray and, I mean, you came to our worship and prayer night and you just listened and you prayed one verse, one sentence, and then you started from there? That's trying versus training. What if you're reading the Bible and you have no idea where to start and uh, you go to community group and you just talk to some people like, how did you, how did you start getting to read the Bible? And they'll tell you how they started, and you just read one verse, and you read another verse, and sometimes you might need help doing it. Um, that's, that's what we're getting at, trying versus training. And of course, the purpose of our disciplines, and I'll close with this, are to put us in a place where God can change us from the inside out. That's where we're going next few weeks. We'll look at the scriptures together. We're not going to like just throw you throw a bunch of rules on you and say, hey, go do this. You'll be a better Christian if you do it. That's not the purpose of this. It's to, it's, it's like John Ortberg said, that we would do an activity by direct effort that will help us do those things that we can't do by direct activity. And what is that? We want the character of Christ formed in us as a community, worshiping, praying, serving, loving the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's a new year. Um, we thank you for it. We thank you for the sun shining today on us, just like it did yesterday. And even though the days seem similar, um, would you put in our hearts um, an anticipation for what you're going to do in our lives in the coming year? We aren't asking you to make this our best year. Prayerfully, our best years are beyond this life, where we'll live with you eternally. But I am asking you as the pastor of, of this church and of these people, God, that you would make us a little bit more like Mary in this season. God, that you would take us away from our busyness, that you would distract us from our distraction. God, that you would remove us from our noisy hearts, quiet our souls, and help us, Lord, um, especially those of us who are bored Christians. You didn't send Jesus to earth to live and die for us, for us to be bored. And so, Lord, help us. Help us. We repent of our lethargy. We repent of our rebellion. We repent of all those ways that our hearts should be inclined to you, but they aren't. And I pray that you would help us use these tools of spiritual disciplines to um, draw our hearts to you. Help us to wrestle with this individually, corporately, as we come to church, as we gather in our community groups. Give us courage to jump in. We trust you. I pray that in Jesus' name.